today on Ag News Daily. Basically, governments that, that have a difficult time accessing wheat and other value-added attributes or production qualities, those, those governments are, are probably introspectively looking at how do we create value-added industries in our own countries because we can no longer be dependent on Eastern Europe or really Western Europe. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined today by Tanner Winterhoff. Tanner, I am feeling much better today. No fuzzy brain for me. Hey, that's good. That's really good. We're a little bit later than usual today, but that's all right. It's still going to have the same weight, carry the same importance uh, of this Ag News Daily episode. Absolutely. I think maybe that's helped with my brain clarity, too. (laughs) Strategic positioning. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I've got a lot of weather-related news today. It just seems to be what hit my newswire. I'll start off first here that the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Department has announced emergency public fish salvages for two reservoirs located in the state's eastern plains. Fishery managers expect Jumbo and Queens reservoirs to dry up completely in the near future. And they're hoping the public can harvest as many fish as possible before that happens. These announcements have been implemented, both voluntary and mandatory fishing closures on trout streams throughout the state, but not in this area. The idea of closing some of those fishing regulations seems counterproductive to this announcement, but catch them before they're gone is the slogan that hits the top of this article. So the CPW implemented emergency fish salvage at the Queens Reservoir starting at the end of July, all bag and possession limits along with fly and lure restrictions have been lifted. So anglers are still required to carry their legal fishing license and use legal fishing methods uh, that were valid in Colorado in order to do this. But Delaney, it's due to the declining water levels and increasing temperatures that they think these fish are in imminent danger of catastrophic kill. So I guess if you are an angler, if you like fishing, Delaney, you need to go back to Colorado. Yeah, I I didn't see very high water levels when we were out in Colorado, as a matter of fact, Tanner. So this uh, does not surprise me. Yeah, it came a little bit as a, a surprise to me. It always is bad news to hear when water levels are so low that fish are finding the environment tough to live in. Well, but I think... Um, I was going to say, I think part of it too, when we were out in Colorado, I don't remember who told us, like a tour guide or somebody said that they just not, didn't have a lot of snowfall or as much snowfall as normal uh, this year. And that certainly contributed to lower lake levels. Yeah. Uh, the next little piece of weather news that I got was uh, parts of Illinois. Holy smokes, did they get some rain. So southeastern Illinois from Effingham to Richland were received 10 to 12 inches of rain out of the last snowstorm or out of the last snowstorm. Jamie Christmas. Now you got my brain fog going here, Delaney. The last thunderstorm, while amounts that high have been received, there are no reports as to extreme totals in certain small isolated areas, but some reports of over two inches an hour, one place nearly four inches an hour. That came because of the heat that's been building here in the plains, spreading eastward across the midwest the edge of that heat creates those thunderstorms they develop late monday across illinois and through monday night and mid-afternoon tuesday all this rainfall 
was amassed. I sent a couple of text messages to some friends that I've developed over there through podcast land. And uh, they said, that's true. There's five to seven to 12 inches of rain. And uh, they now have a lot of water to deal with. Well, Tanner, I think an area that could use water, speaking of talking to your connections, I was talking to a farm broadcaster over in Western Kansas this morning, and he was saying it's only a matter of time before their soybean crop is pretty much done for. Uh, So I think that portion of the country certainly could use a drink of water. You know, we talk about the divide between the Eastern and Western Corn Belt, and there certainly is a clear-cut divide, I think, right now for those that could use rain and those that certainly don't need rain. Yeah, I would agree. It seems like some get it and some don't, and it's coming in extremes right now. It certainly is, Tanner. But switching tracks here just a little bit away from weather, Poet has made a big announcement here today that they have invested officially in the logistics business of all things. They said with their ongoing battle for ethanol producers to secure shipping containers, they've gone ahead and acquired one of the largest rail-to-container terminals in the southeast, and they've acquired the Savannah, Georgia-based Savannah Marine Terminal, according to a news release from Poet that was released earlier today. And like I said, the move here really is to help with some of those shipping issues. And this acquisition will include all equipment and real estate to operate the grain transload facility. And we don't know what the price of this deal was worth, but the Port of Savannah is one of the highest volume container ports in the United States, Tanner. Oh, that is big news. I hadn't seen that headline. I'm glad that you caught it. I got one little last piece of weather news, and I don't know how many of our listeners believe in or follow the Farmer's Almanac, but they have declared parts of the U.S. a hibernation zone. So they are predicting glacial-like snow-filled winter for quite a bit of the northern plains for the United States. Many Americans have been experiencing above average summer temperatures, but the farmer al- Farmer's Almanac winter forecast says we might be headed for the polar opposite this winter. The whimsical forecast, as you ha- as I hinted at in the beginning for belief or non-belief, states that part of the upper Midwest, especially North Central in mid-January could experience near record territory for degrees, so as cold as negative 40 along with significant snowfall. Now, this map does extend a little bit down into Oklahoma and uh, all the way through Missouri, swoops into portions of Colorado, stating that these areas will have above average snowfall. They do hint here that the southernmost plains could be in for a snowy winter as well. So those states are predicted to be shivery, wet, and slushy along with that glacier, glacial-like snowfall. So who knows what this will actually bring, but according to the Farmer's Almanac, we've got a pretty rough winter ahead of us here in Iowa, at least, and the state's right around us. Absolutely, Tanner. And some of that weather we've been talking about today certainly has the grain markets excited today. But before we get to that piece of news, I also wanted to make a couple of notes here of some market-related conversations that we've continued to have. And we're continuing to see China will be a little controversial with their uh, quote-unquote standard military 
practices or exercises, I should say, that are going on right now. Taiwan's reporting that several missiles have hit into some waters right around their area. 11 specifically Chinese ballistic missiles were fired into nearby waters, which is something that hasn't been done since 1996. And we're continuing to see China kind of puff their chest and beat their chest, so to speak, and are certainly sending some warning signs over to Taiwan, as well as to try and see how the Western half of the world will react to uh, they're puffing of their chest, so to speak, Tanner. So we've got that going on and certainly seeing that way somewhat on the markets today. We're also seeing some news here in the crude oil markets. You know, we saw OPEC raise production just slightly, not quite as much as the U.S. had anticipated or hoped for. But U.S. crude oil stocks rose four and a half million barrels in the week ending July 29th, which puts levels a little bit higher, but still 7% below the five-year average. And so we're starting to see gasoline supplies tick back up slightly, but still not seeing that do so much to help us at the gas pump, Tanner. Yeah, that uh, is exactly right. Back to what you were reporting on the Chinese exercises. You know, we, we hit on that a little bit yesterday, but it's interesting to see that they're even going above and beyond what they were letting them know was going to happen. Kind of like, mm-hmm. hey, we might do this, and now accelerating. So yes, two things to really watch. Another thing to watch is DTN is going to be having their corn and soybean yield estimate summer tour start next week, August 8th through the 12th. DTN will take a detailed look at the growing conditions and yield potential for corn and soybeans in 10 states based on their grow yields forecasting models. So we had reported while you were gone, Delaney, on how the wheat tour went about. Now they're going to attack corn and soybeans. So as they head out there, unlike years in the past, the tour will start big picture, releasing national and corn soybean yield estimates on Monday, August 8th. From there, they will get more specific. The tour will take detailed looks at growing conditions in Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. And then on Wednesday, Iowa, Nebraska, and Wisconsin. And then on Thursday, Kansas and Missouri, followed by South Dakota and Minnesota on Friday. DTN will publish a news article every day mid-afternoon, and we'll be sure to get you that information. But the last piece, as I do every Thursday, Delaney, is hit on ethanol production. Ethanol surges to its highest level in four weeks, jumped while inventories increased just a little bit. So production up quite a bit inventories up just a little. So biofuel production rose to an average of 1.043 million barrels per day. That is up from 1.021. So a fairly significant jump in the seven days that ended July 29th. The ethanol stockpiles rose modestly to 23.394 million barrels a day in the week through July 29th. That's up from 23.328. So from 328 to 394, Still positive news for the ethanol industry there, and I'm sure that's going to be reflected in the markets a little bit as well. But that's all I've got for news today, Delaney. Do you have anything else? No, other than just continuing to watch weather for sure, as well as what's going on in the Ukrainian ports, because we're starting to see some, of course, grain movement. And today, Tanner, we will see the first inbound empty shipping container to arrive at a Ukrainian port to potentially get loaded with grain. The issue that a lot of 
cargoes and ships are running into, though, however, is insurance coverage of all things, as well as crews willing to take on those ships and head into that kind of danger zones, Tanner. So certainly some interesting realities that those folks are dealing with. But the reality of the grain markets today is that we are in positive territory, folks, seeing major moves today in corn, but especially in soybeans as they are picking up on everything that's going on right now in the weather market, as well as demand starting to do some uptick here as well. December corn up 13 and a half cents today, trading above $6 for the first time in quite a little while. New crop soybeans up 53 cents at 14.23. New crop wheat up 22 and three quarters cents at 7.86 in the Chicago contract. And over in the livestock markets today, Tanner, we're having the opposite story, of course, as they're seeing their cost of feed go back the other direction. October live cattle down 22 cents, trading around 143.72. And September feeders down 30 cents today at 182.60, while lean hogs are actually trending a little bit higher, up a buck 80 in the October contract at 97.65. But Tanner, as I mentioned, we talked just a little bit there about some news in the Russian-Ukraine war. We're going to talk about that today as the conversation continues to measure and discuss the impact of just how vital and just how long-term some of these complications may be. Yeah, I appreciate you jumping on that interview and running with it for today. Let's get to it. Well, folks, as we teased earlier in today's episode, we are chatting about the continued stress that we see on the grain export and grain markets today with Dr. James Lamont fellow at the Vadine Center for Rural and Economic Development at the University of Minnesota, Crookston. James, thank you so much for joining you. I have to admit that was a little bit of a mouthful. Tell us what you do at the University of Minnesota, Crookston. Absolutely. And first, thanks for having me. Um, basically, for the University of Crookston or University of Minnesota, Crookston, I, I do research on logistics and supply chain work associated with agricultural markets. And so um, over the last several years, I've done research and development on um, projects associated with supply chains, as well as um, how to grow uh, specific industries within the the value-added agricultural um, production sort of sector, if you will. So a lot of great things, and um, I really enjoy the work. And I'm sure you've had no shortage of work since things escalated between Russia, Ukraine. It's been quite a few months now, which seems odd to say, but I know you've been keeping a close pulse on everything going on there. And we've gotten news that we've seen the first Ukrainian Black Sea shipment leave that area. But where do we go from here? Well, this is it's, it's very interesting that you asked that. Um, first and foremost, um, Ukraine has anywhere from 20 to 25 million metric tons of grain that's been stored. And simultaneous to that storage, Ukraine has, um, right now, they're, they're, they're projected to start their harvest for their existing pro- um, product. They also do winter wheat, so they're looking at the next harvest. And then they also have, you know, the 25 million or so uh, metric tons of grain they have to move out. So first shipment, super successful as it got out. I believe it's on its way to Lebanon if it hasn't arrived already. Um, but there are many, many willing buyers, especially in North Africa and West Africa. If you look at kind of where the Ukraine ships or ships the majority of its product, 
those are typically the markets. And um, what that should do is hopefully the, the Turkish government, as well as the United Nations, are able to keep the Russians um, within the confines of the argument. Just for you and your listeners, edification, uh, the deal was to, to sort of relax some of the sanctions against the Russians. Um, and um, that particular deal enables the Russians to trade some of their products uh, for rubles, and it also enables the Ukrainians to move their product out. So you should see um, some relaxation, if you will, in, in global markets, uh, especially as it pertains to wheat. And it's interesting. I was reading an article earlier today that mentioned we may have a deal in place now, but there are new challenges that have come to light, such as companies uh, being unwilling to insure those cargo ships that are in that area and lack of workers who are willing to enter into some of those hostile areas. So we have the agreement in place, but what is the likelihood that we actually are able to physically, either logistically or because some of these other unforeseen challenges, move grain out of Ukraine through the Black Sea region? Sure. Well, well, the pressure's on. I, I think African governments, as well as um, other developing economies like India, have, have placed some level of pressure on the on the Russian government to at least move this product out or enable it to move out. But that said, I mean, you got to take it for what it's worth. Um, within 24 hours of the deal being brokered, the Russian shelled the industrial, the agricultural industrial infrastructure at the port of Odessa. And so, you know, on one hand, there's a lot of pressure and the future looks good. But on the other hand, you have um, military incursions as well as bombings that suggest something otherwise. And then at the same time, in addition to destroying some of the critical infrastructure associated with that port, uh, you know, the largest or most wealthy industrialist in Russia or in the Ukraine uh, was killed by Russian um, airstrikes as well. And so, you know, there's there's a military reality on the ground, and then there's you know the the, the political agreements that have been made. But then, simultaneous to that, um, you're absolutely right in that workers uh, are are difficult to come by in that space, just given where the ports are and given the insecurity associated with ports. But the insurance problem that you surface is also a big deal because uh, the risk premiums are too high if they even exist, and as a result. Getting ocean carriers or other shipping entities to go there, pick up the grain and move the grain without insurance is a difficult proposition. So I think you're seeing some scrambling there. You're seeing, you know, multilateral actors like the United Nations, as well as, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Turkish government trying to uh, broker some of those challenges or mitigate some of those obstacles, if you will. But, um, you know, the 25 million grains is a, or 25 million metric tons of grain is, is a lot to move out. In addition to a you know harvest that's happening now and a projected harvest here in the next several months, and so I mean there's there's a lot of grain that has to move, and at the same time there are a lot of factors on the ground uh, that are counter to the uh, to the success of that grain movement. Now, James, as I understand it, you do quite a bit of traveling, and you've recently been to Africa. I don't know if you've mentioned which countries specifically, but you said that Africa especially is hurting and really needing grains and other goods to come out of this Black Sea region. What is the feeling on the ground there, so to speak? So I was I was actually in Rwanda um, and the the diets there are a little different. Um, there's obviously a heavy wheat dependence uh, across the region, especially as many of these countries become middle income countries. Their diets change 
So, you know, when you, the further south you go in Africa, in effect, until you hit South Africa, the more impoverished it becomes as a reflection of, say, the North African region and further into the southern region. So um, what you'll see is a higher propensity for, like, Egypt, Morocco, and the northern tier of Africa uh, in terms of having that super high dependence as well as West Africa. As you get into Central and Eastern Africa, the diets change. So the, the, the pressure is on, don't get me wrong. I think uh, many African governments as well as Latin American governments and Asian governments, basically governments that, that have a difficult time accessing you know, um, wheat and other value added attributes or production qualities. Those, those governments are, are probably introspectively looking at how do we create value-added industries in our own countries because we can no longer be dependent on Eastern Europe or really Western Europe, just given what we're seeing uh, from an energy perspective. Uh, and, and so I, I think what you're going to see over the next decade is the countries that can't afford it, you know, your lower middle and middle income countries are, are likely going to invest very, very heavily internal to their countries for either some type of food sovereignty or uh, some type of value-added production so that they mitigate their exposure to these types of risks. As you look at some of those other risks that are out there in the world place or marketplace, I should say, I know you've watched a lot and done a lot of videos recently on the available storage worldwide, because as you mentioned, and as we know, we're getting close to U.S. harvest time here. But the more important story is, of course, what's going on in that Black Sea region where they have grain that needs to get out of the country. And they also have a very quickly approaching harvest. As you look at available storage right now worldwide for grains, what does that picture look like? In, in Europe, it's not looking good at all because when you look at the neighboring countries like Romania, Poland, uh, Moldova, the other major ag-producing countries, um, they harvest around the same time. And so those countries need to be able to leverage their storage infrastructure to support their own harvests. And so um, if there is, and then if there is excess capacity, then you need to figure out a way to move it, right? Um, and that, that becomes a constraint as well because of the energy crisis you're starting to see in Europe. And it would only get worse as, as the fall kicks in and the year uh, continues to kind of drag on in that region. Um, so with access to very little storage and super expensive transportation modalities, just given the realities on the ground, uh, it doesn't look great. And so unfortunately, the, the excess capacity that did exist, would, it would have been great if they could have used it in, in the spring and the summer, move the grain out via either the Black Sea or other trade routes. And then subsequently, that would have enabled, you know, the neighboring countries to harvest, leverage their own organic storage capacity, and then it would have enabled the Ukrainians to, to, to move their current harvest, I guess, into storage capacity, which today is over full. So um, unfortunately, we missed the, uh, the, the, the window for that. Absolutely. And, and I know there's a plethora of other issues I'm sure that you're watching right now, but as far as other things coming down the pipeline that are impacting global grain exports, what other things are you paying attention to right now that perhaps our listeners should as well? I think people should be looking at the, you know, global economics. Is the world going toward a recession? Because then that could curtail um, some demand. Obviously, we've got some new geopolitical hotspots to talk about. Um, and, and, and that may 
influence energy prices, inputs, because it's not just the grain, right? It's all of the inputs associated with the grain, cost of fertilizer, the cost of fuels, the cost of just about everything. And then you've got all the outputs. How do I transport this? Once I transport it, where can I transport it to? What's the cost associated with it, et cetera, right? So we have this very dynamic situation operating on multiple dimensions. And given that we've really transitioned into a truly global society, um, really any more conflict or any major um, economic damage that occurs just because of just, well, high rates of borrowing or whatever the case is, what you're seeing is as inflation spikes, those products with the strong dollar become that much more expensive for everybody else. And so there's just, there are a number of factors we need to watch both economically as well as geopolitically to determine which direction uh, prices head. And those prices are a reflection of supply and demand, but also the cost of inputs and then obviously the cost to move the output. So it's kind of a, just a really unique and unstable situation right now. Well, James, as we've been teasing here a little bit, you keep your finger on the pulse of all of these moving issues and you do quite a few of videos and other things like that. If some of our listeners would like to check out some of the resources that you're putting out there and information you're kicking out for folks, how can they find you? Yeah, I would check out the University of Minnesota Crookston's Vadeen. That is V-E-D-E-N, Victor Echo, Delta Echo, November, phonetically, Center. And um, we've done probably almost 40 videos, and it's they're typically updated on a weekly, maybe biweekly basis, given just everything that's impacting agriculture. I mean, the other thing I didn't mention, like I, yeah, when you asked, were like droughts, for example, and how the high heat and droughts are impacting you know, wheat production and other harvests around the world. And so, so anyway, I, uh, we do about a, a video a week to kind of update the globe on, on what's going on. Um, and so I, again, for the Dean Center at the University of Minnesota Crookston, check us yeah. out. Fantastic. We'll be sure to kick listeners that way. Dr. James Lamont, thank you again for joining us today. Certainly appreciate your time. Hey, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. There you go, Delaney. What a great conversation. I'm glad that you had a chance to get our listeners that really key piece of news this week. Absolutely, Tanner. Happy to take that one on and good conversation there with James. So certainly appreciate his time and insight. Absolutely. But for today, let's say we'll let the listeners go. Let's let them go. 